New York City, I think, more so than almost any other city in, in the United States, has been known traditionally because of Ellis Island. Um, so many immigrants coming into the United States from Europe. And as well, just the explosion of Chinatown and other areas as really being one of the largest multi-ethnic cities uh, anywhere in the world. At least traditionally, that's how it started. We're now hearing phraseology and, and, and different terms that are being used that really are confusing to people because within that melting pot that we had years and years and years ago, within a lot of different tensions that have come up as we, this experiment known as America has developed and grown and strengthened, we have a term that a lot of people, I think, misunderstand to a great extent, which is critical race theory. Oh, yeah. First of all, what, are, what led up to that term, critical race theory? I don't want to just ask what it is and what it means, but what are the, the pillars by which that theory is actually built on? So you can go way back if you want to do that. I mean, easily the first person, and I wouldn't call him a critical race theorist, but the first person who was writing in kind of the anti-slavery kind of way, because the Atlantic slave trade is really where critical race theory came out of. Criticisms of that, many, many of which were justified completely. Um, so so you, you could even look all the way back to Frederick Douglass, for example, for many of the earlier roots, uh, all the way back to, you know, he was, he was a freed slave or escaped slave. I don't remember the history on that precisely. So all the way back to Frederick Douglass, you already have this kind of writing speaking about the race issue in America. And obviously the race issue in America with the Atlantic slave trade was a humongous thing. Uh, you also have this kind of parallel issue of the, the colonial, the European colonialism thing where it went to different cultures and uh, in many respects subjugated the people that were there, whether it's the aboriginals of Australia or, you know, whatever you have, depending on where it is, the indigenous people of the U.S. and Canada certainly would fall into that. And so you have this kind of idea that's not altogether wrong that places like the United States in particular were built upon a legacy of racism. And of course our founding fathers wrestled with this. Jefferson wrestled with this very famously. You can't read a biography of Jefferson, you can't read any of his own writing and not find him wrestling with the issue of slavery and therefore race. Ultimately, what was going on is that with the rise of naturalism in Europe, as the sciences were being born as maybe the best, not maybe, definitely the best knowledge producing system that we have, you had a notion of race that was common, you know, in different places of, of this race is superior to that race for this reason or that. But for the first time you had that explicitly linked to heritability and you explicitly had scientific discourses that were trying to rationalize why it was justifiable to do colonialism, why it was justifiable to engage in the, the Atlantic slave trade. And so you had people like Douglas who were starting to react against those very justifiably. Um, later, you'd say kind of a big pillar would have been, and much later, would be W.E.B. Du Bois. Um, he was writing a lot about the same topics. Um, 
the racial contract and all of this that the United States was built on. So you had this kind of theme of criticism running all the way back through American history in particular, but also in European history, where these ideas that the social construct of race that had kind of been brought up with these, which are inaccurate. These are, you know, lump everybody with a certain degree of dark skin or certain ancestry into black, or lump everybody, you know, into to Hispanic or brown or whatever the, the categories, uh, categories happen to be. There's, there's a lot of inaccuracy to that, and they really are social constructions that carried a lot of assumption. Um, scientists don't talk about it that way at all now. They talk about populations. Um, they come from different regions and had different evolutionary histories and things like that. Uh, so you started to see a lot of criticism of that idea of race, these socially constructed ideas of race, um, grounded in sometimes totally reasonable, liberal, rational perspectives, often, as you saw through the civil rights movement, especially in the U.S., appeals to the deal that was supposed to have been made at the beginning, the founding of the United States, was all men are created equal. It wasn't really, and even going back to Jefferson, you see, it wasn't really supposed to be all men are created equal except people that look like this. The, the deal was supposed to be, hey, everybody's created equal, let's make good on that. And so you saw a lot of criticism of ways that that had failed, a lot of legitimacy there, but there's also a great deal of resentment well-deserved resentment, I would say, in a lot of these cases coming up in those those critiques. Then you started to have, with the fall of colonialism in particular, and as uh, the civil rights movements kicked off in the U.S., much more focused criticism. You still had a lot of liberal activism, particularly on the ground, but you also started to see in parallel a rising up of a different perspective. Um, so where way back before these social constructions of race came along, people actually thought that uh, environmental factors created skin tone, hair texture, and right. so on. And they didn't know how biology worked. They had no idea that, that it was heritable. So then all of a sudden you had this idea that race was created as a biological construction that was then tied to you know various personality traits also being posited as being biological constructions to justify superiority versus inferiority. So that's really what was being criticized. Um, you saw this dissolve under the liberal approach. The liberal approach said, okay, we were wrong about that. People are people who happen to be whatever, uh, if we're going to use the word race, race that they are, whatever population group they happen to belong to, whatever characteristics it carries. You started to see the liberal thing start to dissolve that. But then in the kind of the 50s, but mostly going into the 60s, late 60s and 70s, you had this emergence of um, a new kind of race theory that wouldn't have been totally critical race theory yet, that was coming out of the postmodern thinkers and also just the far left social activists that were, were blowing up all over the place at the time, where they wanted to start looking at race as a social construction, as something that's not real, so it kind of fit with that liberal agenda, but to really dig into and make problems out of how that was, was creating racial dynamics that created oppression for people of certain races, and uh, not yet named, but privileges for, for people of other races that were considered to be dominant, especially white race and the construction of whiteness uh, that, that would justify that. So those are the deeper roots. What happened eventually was you 
had, as far as critical race theory itself goes, you had one particular scholar at Harvard, Derek Bell. Yep. Derek Bell was a legal scholar. He was very interested in both race theory and in critical legal theory, which is to pick legal theory, pick at holes, and try to, to expose where there are weaknesses or problematics or something like that, ideally so they can be adjusted. And he fused the two, and he created critical race theory. Now, Derek Bell was not really postmodernist in his orientation, so he wasn't taking up with Foucault. He was a materialist. He was, he was very interested in, in the actual legal theory. But in some sense, he was almost a social conspiracy theorist because he's maybe most famous for his idea, other than critical race theory, of interest convergence theory. If you've heard of this, I yes. don't know. But it's the, the idea that, that powerful groups in society, say white people, only will give marginalized people rights, status, opportunity, etc. when it's also in their interest, when the interests converge, only when it's in the interest of the white people or the more powerful group to, to grant those things. So for example, you wouldn't have the getting rid of Jim Crow laws in the South in particular unless it was to the whites advantage to make themselves look more progressive to say a European market or something like that or to make themselves more palatable to people in some other place, the North or Europe in particular, so that you could have trade going on. You don't see the abolishment of slavery because there was a moral victory one. You see it because white people realize that it would not be in their economic interests with international trade to maintain it. And so that there had to be some interest convergence where the white people aren't really doing any moral any morally motivated progress. They're only doing things that advance their own interests, so they give the minimum amount they can possibly give in order to satisfy their own interests. Derek Bell, well, this this is kind of a conspiracy theory because you can't disprove or prove what anybody's interests or motivations were. And uh, he had a student who's much more famous. That student's name is Kimberly Crenshaw. And Kimberly Crenshaw was much more interested in postmodern thinking. Um, writing the late 1980s, maybe 1989, I think, she wrote a paper that outlined this idea called intersectionality, and she was developing Derek Bell's critical race theory. She went on to spell out the idea of intersectionality in legal theory, again, critical legal theory, finding a loophole, a lot of legitimacy to what she was doing originally, speaking in terms of finding corporations that could possibly discriminate, say, specifically against black women by claiming to hire enough black men and claiming to hire enough white women so that they satisfied racial and gender discrimination law but could openly discriminate, or maybe not openly, but could easily discriminate against black women by saying, well, we have lots of black people, we have lots of women, no problem. Except there is actually this intersected group that's in both categories at once that still is being discriminated against. And so she wanted to advance that idea and in a paper that's literally changed the world, written yes. in 1991 called Mapping the Margins, she wrote a long exposition on why intersectionality is necessary and why rather than taking the liberal liberal approach because she was open which she was openly hostile to she was not having the liberal liberal approach she said the liberal approach was something that benefited only people who were in the dominant groups this is being now taking a very uh, a, a very strong page out of Foucault's book 
hmm. about how power works. Right. It only benefits people who are in dominant groups who already have power to take a liberal approach. It doesn't forward the interests of people who have minority or marginalized identities. And so she wanted to affect a shift. So if you go way back in time, you had the the origin of racism as a as a discourse, if you will, recognizing that there's a meaningful difference between you are a person who happens to have black skin because of environmental factors in Africa or wherever it happens to be, and you are a black person. as a, That's an identity category that means something. So that was the beginning of racism. And then the liberal approach was like, no, 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 that was a mistake. We were wrong. Let's Let's not do that and let's say instead you are a person who happens to be black and forward common humanity first. Kimberly Crenshaw explicitly near the end of Mapping the Margins says the liberals are wrong. We are now not going to take a liberal approach to this, a classically liberal approach to this where everybody is on equal footing first. We are now going to say that there is something meaningful and important in black identity versus white identity versus other identities. Any particular identity status, I am black means something different and more important than I am a person who happens to be black and we should own that. Whether she took that idea from herself or whether she borrowed it from Bell Hooks, another uh, black feminist who was working and saying similar things, she had a very famous essay, Ain't I a Woman, um, saying exactly the same thing, claiming that black women weren't really considered regular or full status women because they're black women of different kind, so Ain't I a Woman. Um, which harkened back to an earlier essay of, I think, the same name. So whether she came up with that idea on her own or whether she's borrowing from bell hooks or whether they're just working in, in a kind of convergent fashion, I'm not sure. But she forwarded the idea and openly said so that the purpose of claiming racial identity is to do identity politics. And the method to do so is through postmodern deconstruction. However, up to a limit. So she saw people like Foucault, Jacques Derrida, these guys, the original postmodernists who advocated deconstructive methods as white bourgeois privileged people who could afford to deconstruct everything including racial identity and that that doesn't advance the, the agenda or the needs or the, the, the problems of uh, people with oppressed identities. So she said we're going to use those deconstructive methods to break down the social constructions of race. We're going to see it in a socially constructed way. We're going to accept that I am black means something more and more important than I am a person who happens to be black. And we're going to tear at this using postmodern deconstructive methods, try to make it just pull it apart at its roots for the purpose of advancing identity politics. And the one thing we're not going to deconstruct, therefore, is identity and oppression based on identity. We'll, de we'll deconstruct everything right up to that point. But identity and oppression based on identity are real. And they are, if you take the postmodern line, the only things that are real, and they are modulated as the postmodernists would have it through language, the way we speak about things, and uh, representation and things like that. So we need to institute a political project to change language, change the way we speak about things, change the way we think about things, which means change the way people are allowed to talk about things and think about things, and change representation in order to, as they would say, remediate the problems of racism, which she had just reified after decades of liberal work had tried to undermine that reification of race and say that was, that was something erroneous. So that's the roots of critical race theory 
as far as kind of its historical development, where it kind of came from, who the thinkers were originally, where it became, when I said that Derek Bell's a materialist, that means he's actually, uh, it's like a softened version of Marxist, but it's not quite the same as Marxist. Very interested in, in material features, but especially in capitalist material features and how they screw certain people over. And then his student, Kimberly Crenshaw, comes up with this idea of intersectionality to advance identity politics, to start getting people to identify with their races and to pick apart powerful races and problematize them so as to be able to advance the notions of, or advance the, the agendas of, of marginalized or oppressed races. Well, you said problematize. Can, what do you mean by problematize? Now, problematizing is the tool of uh, critical theory in general, reaching probably back to the Frankfurt School and Horkheimer and all of these guys. But um, more specifically, it got picked up in the term, uh, the context that we would use it now, it got picked up by uh, the postmodern thinkers and modified to postmodern ends. To problematize is to engage in a close look to find problematics, to find problems uh, that are indicative of some kind of a systemic problem. So, you know, if we were to have, say, where we're, everybody that works in an office understands the printer, and you know, you put the wrong ink cartridge in and it jams, or the wrong kind of paper in and it jams, you could say this kind of paper is problematic for the printer. We all have that kind of use of the word, but that's not what's meant here. What's meant here is that there's like a, a, a whole systemic problem throughout all of society. In this case, with critical race theory, that problem is either or both of racism or white supremacy. They are systemic, meaning everybody's participating in them. They participate in them in the way that they talk about things and the ideas that they have, the way that they think, the way that we do representation. They manifest every time there's an instance of racism anywhere, whether it's big or small, it's just a manifestation of this kind of disease that's under the surface. Like if you had a virus and you're sick and it causes boils to come up, and every now and then a boil comes up. You can't analyze the boil in and of itself to understand the disease. You have to realize that the whole body is sick and the boil was incidental to that. So they have this idea that's called imminence, that, that, that this idea that, that racism or white supremacy is imminent throughout society. It's a system we all participate in. Whites automatically benefit from it and can't help but benefit from it. They call that privilege. And instances of racism are uh, just manifestations of that systemic everywhere always problem coming up to the surface. So problematizing is a tool by which you might examine things very, very closely, like to read things into other things, to read racism into something, for example, a text, a TV show, the construction of the table. Uh, it's, a, it's a means of looking to find ways to discover racism hidden within everything because the assumption is that racism is hidden within everything. And then when you find such problematics, which inevitably crop up because nobody's perfect, you then point to that as proof that there is a systemic problem. If you can't see the circular reasoning there, it, I'll draw a circle for you, it's right there. Well, I, I've heard me in, you say in the past that in, in, in essence, that critical race theory in some ways resembles Scientology. Yeah, it's I would it's in black Scientology. Yeah, it's it it's the the imminence here is kind of like a pervasive force. Um, I kind of thought of it as like racism working like the thetans that they have. You know, there's these alien spirits that latch onto your soul and cause you all kinds of problems. And what you have to do in Scientology is you go and you hook up to the e meter. They have some method. They interview you or whatever they call it, and they um, discover 
that you have these systemic spiritual problems inside of you. But with critical race theory, they do the same thing. They analyze to the finest level of detail possible, your speech, your actions, your dress, anything that they can do, anything that you've chosen to read or watch or the way that was produced to find instances where racism's inside the system. They just aren't hooking you up to an e-meter. They're, they're looking for racism anywhere they can find it and then bringing it out and then giving you this process that you have to go through to, rather than taking your money, they expect you to go atone and put uh, put black voices forward uh, to you know make more representation to give black to give more acting roles or whatever happens to be to black people to give them more advancement in their careers to make them more visible and prominent in society, but also to encourage introspection within you to look inside yourself and try to figure out how racism is is operating within you and how you participate in that system that's what they mean by racism is that you're participating in the system that they believe is totally pervasive everywhere always and they want to find that bring it out and cause you to look inside yourself feel guilty they say they don't want you to feel guilty but they want you to feel guilty about that and then try to change yourself for the better which sounds good until you realize that it's not possible to change yourself for the better because you still participate in the system and you still uh you still have the systemic problem as as a part of you that you benefit from no matter what you do so if, no matter how you decide to amend yourself as a result of this process that can also be problematized meaning finding ways that weren't adequate mm -hmm. so for example you could um, decide, ah, well, the black community needs the help of more privileged white individuals to come in and speak on their behalf. And, you know, maybe they, you know, the city council won't listen to black people, so we'll get a white person to go down and speak for them. But now you're speaking on behalf of a community that you can't possibly understand because you don't participate in it. They've problematized your action. Or you've positioned yourself as an ally, which seems like the thing they want you to do and hope that you'll do, but that's problematic as well because by positioning yourself as an ally you make yourself into a good white you give yourself additional social status you allow yourself to speak for people whose whose uh experience you can't possibly have had and um you insulate yourself from or try to insulate yourself from the criticism so they see this all in a very cynical way kind of like interest conversions theory there's only a possibly a cynical explanation for why the civil rights move where well, the civil rights movement succeeded there's there has to be some cynical thing that, that led to that here if some white person gets very very concerned about some issue that's relevant to the black community and they go speak out to try to change it well now they're positioning themselves as a good white versus the other whites who are less good because they're just trying to raise their status so that they appear less problematic and gain status for themselves with the communities that care about those things and they're therefore not really working in the interest of the black community that they claim to be working for, they're operating in their own oh, interest. interest. So again, you have interest convergence theory coming into play. And so you can kind of see how there's, there's, you can't win. It's a game that's cooked to, so that you can't win. And that's only going up to like critical race theory 2000. You know, we're 20 years past that. And, and they've cooked the books a bit further since. So what do you, what's happened since 2000? I mean, I know we had, of course, what Peggy McIntosh developed in her concepts yeah. of white privilege and so forth. What has really developed since 2000 through so, till now? Since 2000, more and more people started to take those things for granted that changed in the 80s and 90s. So you had people like Peggy McIntosh, white privilege, that was 1986. 
seven, eight, I, six, something okay. in there. And then you had um, un unpacking the invisible knapsack, she called right. it. And then you had Kimberly Crenshaw's two landmark papers, which were um, 1989 and 1991. You had Patricia Hill Collins, another prominent black feminist who developed the matrix of domination to explain how intersectionality works. That was again, early 1990s. 1990 is I think when her book came out, her big book on that. Um, but it may have been 1991, uh, somewhere right in there. And so by all of this got taken up by, by education theory very quickly. There's a strong movement to push critical race theory into critical race education uh, that was particularly probably initiated by bell hooks again, black feminist uh, scholar with a book called Teaching to Transgress, which was in 1994. This got advanced in 1999 by a scholar named Megan Bowler, who wrote about the pedagogy of discomfort, which is claiming that you, th the goal of education should be to overcome privilege, or a major goal of education would be to overcome privilege. And you can only possibly do that by making a privileged person very uncomfortable and leaving them to sit in that discomfort to initiate the change, the anti-racism work that they would do. So really what was born out of all of this, not only through the education system was, A, people believing that this is just a matter of fact rather than a politically motivated social theory that wasn't even coming out of the social sciences, it's coming out of the theoretical humanities. And B, you had um, this idea of anti-racism as they call it coming up, which is a, it's a set of practices and work that you're supposed to continually do if you participate, which everybody does, especially white people, in a racist or white supremacist system. And you have to do your, this, this idea of anti-racism work that you have to do really started to influence how people think. And so the next crop of scholars who started writing really, um, if, uh, really influential things would have been coming out around 2010. So you have Robin DiAngelo is the most famous. Uh, she came out with White Fragility. She wrote uh, originally as a paper in 2011. She had a book in 2018 that was New York Times bestseller for some absurd amount of time. World tour, talks about it everywhere. She's just exploded. White Fragility is one concept among about a dozen that's kind of, we can think of it like a point of the spear um, that now kind of characterize what critical race theory does, both in education and in broader society, which is to cook the books completely so that it's an impossible game to win. What white fragility says is, okay, you participate in white supremacy, you participate in this racist system, and you're going to be now, by people advocating anti-racism work, going to be confronted with that. If that makes you uncomfortable, if you push back, if you disagree, if you stay silent, if you go away, if you ignore, if you do anything except agree with it, and I'm not exaggerating, Robin DiAngelo literally wrote that, Right. then you are exhibiting fragility that proves that your white privilege is so influential on your life that you can't handle uh, anti-racism work, which she called you haven't developed racial stamina uh, to do the work necessary to overcome the racism that she knows you must be participating in. As she says, racism is a system. Everybody participates in it, she claims. So uh, no one is bad, but no one is neutral. It, it disproportionately benefits whites and white people cannot escape this fact. And so anti-racism work is, can never end and you have to keep doing it. 
And if you don't agree to this, you're just prove the, the whole idea of white fragility is that if you don't agree with these accusations, then you're proving that, it, that you're, you're guilty of the problem. If you use reason to argue back, you're participating in a system that was created by white men in order to exclude uh, women and racial minorities from being able to argue on their own terms. If you uh, in any way get upset, then you're just exhibiting your dominance and so on and so forth. That's exhibiting white supremacy. So it's all cooked so that you can't possibly win. And like I said, this is just one out of a, maybe a half a dozen or a dozen different concepts that all function the same way. I can start listing them off. Allison Bailey had privilege preserving epistemic pushback. You want to preserve your privilege if you have it, so you push back in terms of knowledge production. You, you resist the, having your mind changed and push back. That's her idea. All came out around the same time. That would have been 2017. She had a huge paper about tracking it in classrooms, so she had the idea beforehand. Pernicious ignorance. That would be Christy Dotson. Uh, Willful ignorance, it's Tuana and Sullivan, 2007. Um, you have Alison Bailey talking about white ignorance and color talk, which are ways to not agree. Uh, uh, the Barbara Applebaum, as a matter of fact, really goes far into this and says that it's not possible to disagree honestly with these concepts. The only way that's legitimate disagreement is to ask questions for more clarification until you understand and agree. So they've cooked and agree and agree. And so they've cooked the system so that the only possible thing you can do is agree or you're proving your participation in a racist and white supremacist system that disproportionately benefits you or if you happen to be a racial minority that you're trying to cash in on as say some kind of a sellout with phrases we won't utter here, or that you have false consciousness, um, or any number of other, those are the two big ones, any other of other reasons that you might, that are all cynical or blaming you for, for wanting to participate in, in the system. So there's, there's a problem here, which is that this is not being forwarded in a, forwarded in a way where discussion, debate, disagreement, uh, possibly finding even middle ground is possible. Looking for middle ground would be seeking a compromise, which is therefore participating in the system to try to ignore the anti-racism work that they know you must do, therefore a form of exhibiting your white fragility. Willful ignorance, active ignorance, pernicious ignorance, privilege preserving, epistemic pushback, white fragility, third order, uh, epistemic oppression, the, the entire social justice literature, and I say social justice specifically because at this point intersectionality has started to blend the different you know, critical race theory, queer theory, the different roots, critical gender theory, and so on. It's kind of blended all of these things together into kind of one morass of theory. Helen Pluckrose refers to that as as uh, she usually calls it, I mean, she's very, very careful, but she calls it social justice scholarship, unless you had another homoid cluster. Oh, oh, yeah. Somebody wrote for Aereo magazine that this is all falls under what would be called the homoid cluster. Things that are shaped like postmodernism, but aren't necessarily exactly that. Right. Um, I think it's clear that it's an evolution of postmodern principles and uh, beliefs and themes through the ages where, like I said, in the 80s and 90s, you had this moment where all of a sudden they have postmodern deconstruction, pull apart everything, um, 
forward group identity over the individual, uh, focus and like wholly on the power of language, cultural relativism, these postmodern themes, the belief that knowledge is objective knowledge is impossible to obtain. Um, everything is a cultural construct and therefore is just culturally local. Um, and that there are power dynamics that are intrinsically problematic. So you saw Foucault saying very pessimistically, well, it doesn't matter because once one power dynamic gets overthrown, another power dynamic is going to replace it. And then you have Kimberly Crenshaw and Judith Butler in the 1990s stepping in and saying, nope, identity is sacred. Marginalized identity is a sacred place we don't deconstruct. We're going to proceed upon group identity. We're going to push identity politics with this, and we're going to make use of and apply those postmodern methods. But we're not going to do like those privileged bourgeois French postmodernists who had the the high social status to be able to ignore issues of race or, ironically enough, you know, marginalized sexuality or whatever else. Now these things are sacred, and so it all kind of goes out of that and is, is built these postmodern looking things that aren't pure postmodernism anymore, but they take the same principles, the same themes, the same ideas, the same uh, deconstructive methods to tear apart everything that could be a meaning-making structure for society. And they've, all, they've preserved all of that and just made race, sexuality, sex identity, gender identity, and so on, those statuses, ability status, fat status, they've made these things into sacred identities that carry special access to unique knowledge that other people can't have, and it's gone on to make new theories shaped off of those principles that reified identity. What does that do in terms of the danger to what society is now and how far we've actually progressed? So there are a number of dangers. One is anytime you start to devalue the individual and start looking in terms of groups, uh, you start to undermine the concept of responsibility. Uh, individualism comes with re individual responsibility. Is you know if you want to be a, a free individual, you have to ha have individual responsibility. It's there's always that two sides of that coin, right? Freedom and responsibility are two sides of the same coin. Right. Otherwise, it's irresponsible and, and you have problems. So they've, they've undermined the view of the individual and therefore tried to collectivize responsibility. So now that's a danger because now all white people are complicit. And any racial or sexual minority who doesn't share the right view, who doesn't subscribe to theory is some kind of a sellout and they're problematic too. So you start to tear apart that aspect of society and it's true they don't intersectionality doesn't look at individual people as individuals. It looks at a part this is a little complicated. It looks at people as all of their identity groups kind of at once. And so it always is going to analyze whatever's going on in terms of a person's group identity. And that, because it's postmodernism and nothing has to make sense, that can vary according to need. So, you know, you can be, say, a white gay man and you're going on about, you know, gay issues, blah, blah, blah. And the second you step out of line, boom, you're a white man. Right. The Dave gay Rubin. part just fell out. David Rubin would be a... Sure, yeah. The second you step off the off off message, they can pick the the parts of your identity that carry privilege 
and discredit what you're saying. That's right. Um, because they try to blur the boundaries between categories, you start to have major problems even within like legal standards, for example. Um, this is a really interesting thing that I think about quite a lot. Uh, I think that one of the projects that, that this theoretical approach in social justice takes is to undermine the very concept of the reasonable person. There is no reasonable person because the reasonable person has to have some status of objectivity. So when you have something in a court of law that bends to the reasonable person standard, as it's called, what would a reasonable person think in this situation? The answer is there is no reasonable person. Everybody's just loaded up with their biases that are cooked in because of their group identities. So there's no reasonable person. So all of a sudden you can start to do things like claim that when a uh, store owner calls the cops on a racial minority who's shoplifting, that the shoplifting minority shouldn't be held to account or punished or, or nothing should happen to them because a reasonable person might, there is no reasonable person to say, yeah, that what happened there was out of line. Yeah, so you can see so, how this becomes pretty pretty detrimental. So, um, in, in essence, like the, the the laws that we then have uh, that keep our society together, that 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 guard uh, both personal responsibility as well as as you know, in terms of individual liberty, that if we begin to erode away at those laws that we've created by then basically allowing someone to to have more privilege to be able to assault those laws or to not be held accountable for those laws. Seems like you're identifying the irony here. That the, these, this view, which relentlessly attacks privilege that it attaches to white, male, straight, any normative, if you will, or powerful identity. Uh, because they, they relentlessly attack in this one direction by group identity, they give themselves actually enormous privilege, right? They give themselves immunity to certain laws. They give themselves immunity to criticism. For example, they could work in some, and I've had people email me about this happening in their workplaces. They can work in some industry, and then if their white boss criticizes their work because it was done wrong, that was an act of racism against them because they can read racism into that situation. And so you constantly have people um, looking for reasons to be offended and yelling about it on the one hand and other people constantly afraid that they're going to offend people with no possible way to navigate the situation uh, and so you'd have a total breakdown of any relationship across any two people who don't have exactly the same identity factors um, because it has to find a power dynamic in all of them and so that's, you know, within legal, within the business world, within how society is going to function, within how people are going to get together, say, even just to have a party at their house. All of a sudden, you know, the, the identity salience, whether you're paying attention to, oh, there's a black person here, so I have to be really careful and can't speak and, and I don't want to offend anybody and everybody gets bound up. And of course, me even saying that that would be a concern is proving my own participation in the system, whereas if I don't acknowledge it, that would also be proving my participation in the system. The books are cooked against you. Uh, it makes society hard to have, especially in a place like this in New York, where you have so many different uh, ethnicities and, you know, immigrant statuses, so many different people coming together from so many different backgrounds all at the same time. It makes it hard to find that common identity like the power went out here yesterday right. and it was all over the news how 
and this is a, a point of pride for New York, it makes me sometimes wish I was from New York, is that when stuff like that happens, New York comes out and is New York. It doesn't matter who you are, where you came from, you're New Yorkers, we're gonna get New York through this. It was big after 9-11, it was, the power went out last night for whatever reason, and for what, half of Midtown or whatever, and people are out directing traffic in the streets, helping the police, and you said New York came together as New York. That's what psychologists call a superordinate identity. Um, intersectionality carves superordinate identities apart. Anything that universalizes people is not okay because it erases that special group identity status that's necessary to advance the agenda of identity politics, which was, according to Kimberly Crenshaw, not exaggerating this, explicitly the goal of introducing this aspect of theory in the first place. And we haven't even talked about knowledge production where all of a sudden you can't, uh, knowledge production through science and reason is problematized as being invented by white and men, or white men who therefore cooked their biases into it. This was a very Foucauldian idea. Foucault was very convinced that the science, as he called it biopower by the way, uh, the science is cooked in this idea of the predominant milieu, whatever it was, in that case it would be white, colonialist, male, straight, etc. They cooked in their biases into science as a knowledge producing system so that the knowledge it produces is intrinsically going to admit white, male, straight, so on perspectives while excluding other ways of approaching knowledge, which according to the cultural relativism that these radical views took on is that all cultures' approaches can't be judged from any other culture's place, and therefore, in some sense, we just have to punt the football and say they're all equal. So now you have people saying, well, we're going to introduce indigenous philosophy into the academy, and the deal is, because it's indigenous, they're gonna advance their ideas in the philosophy department, and you can't argue against them. You cannot criticize them because that would be a colonialist mindset taking over indigenous ideas that can't be challenged. You can see that the bigotry of low expect expectations in this, like oh like the native or the black or the Hispanic or whatever marginalized group it is, can't handle their ideas being challenged and that they won't survive scrutiny. You can also see the idea that they're giving themselves massive amounts of privilege and you can also see how are we going to produce rigorous knowledge if it can't be subjected to some kind of a critical process that, that tries to identify what's wrong with it and let what's right within it survive. So you have this undermining of our ability to produce reliable knowledge, the undermining of the ability to produce uh, a coherent society, the difference between a pluralistic society, for instance, that's filled with many different people of different origins who try to come together under a superordinate identity versus a multicultural in which everybody fragments into their own little cultural zones and they don't get along because everybody's got cultural barriers between them and then inflame those cultural barriers so that people can't even participate in them or enjoy them. They call it cultural appropriation, or they call it exploitation of some kind, or uh, exotic, they, they call it ex exotifying, you know, oh, I really love Indian food. Well, you just love it because it's exotic and you're, you're making, you're, you're appropriate, you're using their culture to your own advantage, white man. And so you inflame all of the sectors of society, knowledge production, law, education, um, even down to like 
clubs like knitting groups and uh, yeah. and uh, I have people reach out to me all the time from like hiking clubs that are turning into these identity politics wars. Um, even just the f basics of it's society happening itself. everywhere. And it's happening everywhere. Yeah. I mean, it's, so you're it's looking, in everything. You're, you're looking at from a governmental perspective, you're looking uh -huh. at things from an educational perspective, you're looking at things in arts and entertainment, you're looking at things actually in faith, in, in the major faiths in of, faith, yeah. of Protestant Christianity, in Roman Catholicism, and even in Islam now. Even in Islam now, yeah. So within all of these, there is that oppressor-oppressor narrative that mm -hmm. has to be forwarded, that there is the intersectional framework that is that is being laid upon nearly everything Yes, for the purposes of <coughs> division. For the purposes of advancing identity politics, which in the modern parlance means division. They try to claim that the civil rights movements were identity politics because they're focused on a particular identity, but there's a difference. Right. There's a core difference. The civil rights movement used the liberal method of, now everybody will point, you know, you had Martin Luther King as the good cop and you had Malcolm X as the bad cop and he was definitely doing something different. Black Panthers were definitely pushing black nationalism and black identity and so on. But overall, the success of the um, civil rights movements, second wave feminism, the black civil rights movement, even the earlier phases of gay pride, you all had this appeal to common humanity and making good on the promise that was laid down, for example, in the United States Constitution, that everybody's equal before the law, everybody's equal before, if you will, a creator, and that we're going to start there. And it was, let's make good on that promise, let's do the liberal thing, let's try to, you know, understand each other for who we are. What was Martin Luther King's famous thing, of course, judged by the content of their character, not by the color of their skin, which was problematized for not being sufficiently inclusive to sexual minorities, by the way, in Oregon a couple of years ago at the University of Oregon. So problematize the statement. Well, yeah, they found a problem in it. It didn't talk, he, Martin Luther King said great things about race, but he didn't say anything about trans people, probably because he was transphobic, problematic. Cancel him. Take, they wanted to take down a bust of Martin Luther King with that quote and have it removed because it was insufficiently inclusive to, to, to sexual minorities because he wasn't talking about those. So you have this very liberal approach that was pushing at that time versus this kind that says, let's reify race. Instead of let's try to be, and you're not even allowed to say this anymore, colorblind, let's say that character matters more than skin color, that these social constructions of race need to be made irrelevant. That was the civil rights movement. The social constructions around homosexuality need to be made irrelevant. They're just people. Let's start there. They have different things. Let's work on, work on it from there. That was liberal civil rights. Identity politics is wholly different. It reifies identity. It says, no, being I am black means something more important than I am a person who happens to be black. And that needs to be advanced on purpose. So that's the agenda. And that does create division not least, I mean, there are a number of mechanisms, not least because it increases identity salience. It makes who somebody, somebody's racial or gender or sex or whatever characteristics jump out to people, become relevant and become points of friction, which by the way, in the literature is called by Jose Medina, epistemic friction, which is considered necessary to affect meaningful change in social justice education. This is all thoroughly theorized, and this is exactly how they see the world 
that race, identity, whether it's sexual, racial, etc., all has to be made of central importance above all other factors and always considered in everything, but considered perfectly, which is impossible, or else there's a problem. And because you don't have their experience, which comes from what's called standpoint epistemology, this is well theorized too, who you are in society, meaning what racial and sexual groups you belong to, gives you special access to knowledge as an oppressed person that other people can't possibly have. Because of that, you know things that other people don't, and so if you are privileged, you have to shut up and listen and take for granted whatever the people say and agree with it. Mm. So, I think we can state that there is, that you have identified the issue, the problem. I cooked think. books and conspiracy theories, that's the problem. Cooked books, what do you mean by that? They've made it so it's a, it's a game that, I mean, if I was the president, I'd be saying the game is rigged. You can't interact with any person who's a minority in any way who's taken up intersectionality and win. You can't come out of this unscathed. You can only agree with them and have to be sorry that you agreed with them in the wrong way and too slowly. The books are cooked. You can't win. The game is rigged against you if you can be found to be privileged in any way. And privilege is relational, so everybody is privileged in some way. The books are cooked so that whatever the person who can claim more oppression has to say has to be accepted and believed on its own terms without question because to question it is to participate in the system that's holding them down, you racist. So essentially there is no win for anyone that is not participating in the intersectional game. Right. So I would, I would qualify that a little bit. There is no winning for anybody who can be problematized, which is everybody eventually, if they've taken up the intersectional game, if they buy in, if they put that chip in on intersectionality and say, yeah, this is a tool, or as Kimberly Crenshaw calls it, a practice that I'm going to engage in. The second you accept the intersectional approach as valid, your privilege makes you lose. You cannot win. The next big question that we'll deal with, I think in the next couple days, and talking through this is why. Okay. Why? The other thing was happening. conspiracy theories, by the way. Ah, so conspiracy theories, what do you mean? So, I mean, the conspiracy, conspiracy theories here run all the way to the bottom. We talked about Derek Bell's interest convergence theory. We talk about um, white fragility. Any of these ideas that uh, racism is this systemic force. For example, this is gonna go into white fragility. Uh, is a systemic force that everybody participates in through the way we speak about things, through the way we value representation, through the routine interactions of the day. And I say a conspiracy theory and I actually mean a conspiracy theory with no conspirators. Everybody's participating. But to not participate, so this is kind of cookbook soup, to not participate in the game that they want you to play is proof of your complicity. So for example, white people can't possibly disagree, this is white fragility, without exhibiting white fragility. You could generalize this as uh, we've talked about before um, in some of the papers we've written, um, to you know, a man can't possibly disagree with a woman because he's exhibiting male fragility if he does which you hear in phrases like cry white man tears or you know whatever. Right. White women tears is a really big one that black feminists lob at white feminists. Uh, so the, it's kind of this mind reading 
conspiracy, we all play, play, participate in the conspiracy through the way we speak about things and how knowledge is produced and legitimized. And there's this mind reading that comes up that says, oh, anytime you don't agree with us, you're participating in the system. Yep. Oh, interest convergence theory of Derek Bell. White people or privileged groups will only give access or rights or opportunities to some minority status group when it's also in their interests to do so. So there's no pure motive possible. If you read all the way back to Foucault, I mean, he didn't get explicit about this, but everything he looked at, the history of madness, the history of sexuality, uh, even in Discipline and Punish, you look back at his writing, it was essentially him describing progress that had been made, either scientific or social or whatever, and then saying that, well, it's not really progress because it was just a new means for society to exert control over everybody. So he talks in Discipline and Punish, which is considered his best work, about how there used to be public torture, but what was public torture? Was it to torture somebody and you know get them to do whatever? No, it was a public display to prove that the sovereign had power. And then that came down a notch and eventually, you know, his, his, he had this whole series that goes down to the prison and it just kept coming down a notch where it's like, okay, now we're going to imprison people to reform them. But again, the reason that we want to do this is because we want to impose our power and will over them and make them be something different than they naturally would be. So it's only because it's in our interest to do this that we're actually, it's all the way through this kind of conspiratorial mindset that um, the system was set up by the winners to keep themselves in power. Privilege always begets privilege. You've probably, you know, everybody's heard, you know, power corrupts, absolute power, power corrupts, corrupts absolutely, absolutely, or whatever. Well, this the idea, you just take, that that's it, really, and then take the idea of privilege. The idea within these critical postmodern theories is that power always works in mysterious ways, no less, through the systemic forces and discourses we speak with that nobody can quite identify except in close read. Power always works to legitimize itself, perpetuate itself, maintain itself, and exert itself over those it oppresses. It always works in its own interests. And you see that throughout all of this kind of, whether it's postmodern, Foucault, That's the underlying Derrida, theory. et cetera, if, you, if it's not postmodern, like Pierre Bourdieu and, and these other guys, that's the underlying theory. Hmm. We have a lot to talk about. There here is in the a next, lot going on here. In, in to to actually unwind this for There's folks. There's insane amounts to understand unwind. this is is really a task that I want to appreciate both you, Peter Bogosian, uh, Helen Pluckrose, um, how you guys have inter you have undertaken a a massive but necessary project. Uh, because we have to get back to thinking right. in a certain way that is is not always leading to our own self-victimization. Right. And exactly. for us to be able to prog progress not only civilizationally as a whole, but individually as human beings. Right. It's going to be necessary to think through th these things and go back to what are the root causes of what some of these issues are. And right. We're going to undertake to do that here in the next couple of days.